Well, I'm going to do announcements because Sean Jones had you all greet when Karen was supposed to do announcements, and then you were going to greet. So you're going to be here like 10 minutes just listening to me ramble on about announcements. Don't tune me out. Don't tune me out. If you are new, welcome. There's a Connect card in the seat back in front of you. Unless you're in the front row, then there's nothing in front of you but me and spit. So sorry about that. Uh, fill out the, the Connect card if you want more information about us. Turn it in the Welcome Center in the back. This Wednesday night starts our gospel class. It's an eight-week class that goes over what Element believes is basic theology that every Christian should know. It's a precursor if you want to become a member at Element. And so uh, if you need child care, in your uh, little sermon notes that are at all the communion tables this morning, if, you need, if you're going to come to that and you want child care, scan that with your smartphone. You've got a little QR reader, scan that, sign up. You don't have to sign up to come to the class, only if you just need child care. So scan that, you can sign up for child care right off the... Sermon notes this morning. Uh, let's see. Oh, we're gonna. Oh, so at the gospel class, I should read the note, the announcements. So at the gospel class this week, we're gonna talk about scripture, why we can trust it, uh, why and how it was written, and all the different translations and stuff like that. You can ask any questions when you're done, as well. Uh, next Sunday, kids transitioning from sixth grade into seventh grade, the junior highs. Hires are going to actually have a class during this service next week. So it's, and they're going to have all the junior hires together so they don't feel so awkward about going 6th into 7th grade. Uh, if you would like, if you're a parent and you would like to be a youth leader at some point, James would love to meet and talk with you. He'll be around after service as well. Uh, also, if you are a junior, a parent of a junior hire or a high schooler, there will be a parent meeting after the 2nd and 3rd service on July 8th. So just kind of... Sign up for that. They'll be quick and informative. We just want to let you know what's going on so that we can stay in connection with you. Uh, Financial Peace University, FPU. Uh, this is a class that we've done multiple times. It's to help all of you budget well and spend your money correctly so you don't end up like our government in debt that we're all going to be paying for pretty soon here. Uh, it used to be a 13-week-long class. They revamped the whole thing, and now it's nine weeks. I know if you took the 13-week class, you're probably thinking, ah, why can't I get the nine? <laughs> well, now you can. You can come again. It's, it's right there. It's, it's great for you. Uh, the cost for the class, if you've never taken it, uh, it's 100 bucks. The money doesn't go to us. It goes to pay for the course and the material because you get stuff to take home with you. If you've ever taken the class before, you can take it again for free for your entire life. No matter where it's offered, you can come and take it again. Uh, so you can get more information about all those events at the Welcome Center in the back. The very last announcement on there is, please stand and greet each other. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll give you a couple things. Uh, number one, if you are new, the decor you see in the room, it's not that we're trying to be you know, some Persian Christian church. It's that we have now stepped into the next section of the book of Genesis, which ends up dealing with relationship. And so this whole idea is to be like a Persian tent, like if you had a decent amount of money in that culture, your tent would probably look really nice and, and homey and stuff like this. And so we want to give the idea of relationship and covenant. That's what this is all about. I have a couple things that I had announcements to talk to you about, so still don't tune me out, and I'm really sorry I'm just going on forever about this. We have baptisms coming on Labor Day weekend, and if you have never been baptized and you are a believer, we encourage all of you to be baptized. Uh, in, in the early church, you know, when you became a Christian, you didn't have you fill out a little commitment. Uh, card. Oh, I'm committed to Jesus, and I filled out my name. Well, you know what you did? You got baptized. All right. So this is why all of you, if you're not, if you haven't baptized, and you are a believer, should get baptized. So there's a sign-up sheet in the back. If you want to be baptized, sign up. We'll get a hold of you and get all the information uh, that we need. Also, Friday night is film and theology. Uh, this is the one. This, I'm doing this one on Friday night. Actually, we're going to do. What am I doing this week? The adjustment bureau. 
I'm doing like three. I don't know what's going on in my life. I have people to tell me what I'm doing. Okay, The Adjustment Bureau. Uh, great movie because it actually speaks directly to the way our culture views God today. And if you like sci-fi, great sci-fi movie, you've got to follow along. You might get lost. If you've never seen it, you should come. It'll be a lot of fun. The youth group actually has a little uh, concession stand in the back, and they sell milk duds and popcorn and whatever else. But they sell milk duds, so that's always... And if you can't find milk duds, swing by here, grab some milk duds because they're awesome. Right. Lastly, again, if you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. If you have a smartphone, you download an app or an iPad, and you can download the app. It's called Version, and you click on Live. It'll bring us up by GPS, and you'll get all the sermon notes and verses as we go along with all of this. <gasps> Deep breath. Moving on. Why don't you stand with me reading God's Word? You're like, really? We're going to talk about the Bible and not just announcements? Yes. This is Matthew chapter 7, verse 5. It says, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would teach us as a people to understand the great grace that you have bestowed upon us, and that everybody on this planet is on a level playing field, that we have all been sinful and lost, and you as our great God has come to save us. And so I ask that you would help us to understand that so we lovingly care for those around us and not judge them in ways that make them less than we are, but realize that we are all people who need to be saved by your grace and goodness. Amen. Have a seat. So this is Genesis week 21. If you've been around uh, through this, you know we, we've like Easter and Father's Day and Mother's Day, and we've had all these breaks kind of in Genesis. From now all the way through next Easter, we're in Genesis. Every week, Genesis. Even if for some reason I'm not here because i got a, a couple weddings to do that I'm not going to be in town for, still Genesis. We're just going all the way, all the way through. And we're actually not going to finish Genesis till next July. <laughs> so next year when we're talking about you're like, are we still on Genesis? I visited that church once. Don't they have any new material? What's up with that? So if you have a Bible, open to Genesis chapter 12. That's where we're at. Two weeks ago, I hope I didn't lose all of you with the whole predestination thing that we talked about in the election. Video blogs will start going up in the next couple weeks to answer all of your questions. Now, two weeks ago, we talked about God's choice to speak to and use this guy named Abraham. It is extraordinary that God would humble himself and come and speak to this pagan man. It is extraordinary that God humbles himself to come and speak to you and I as well. I mean, God speaks through his spirit and through the scriptures, and we must understand that God is a God who longs to communicate with his people. Now, when God speaks to Abraham, we, you know, he's never heard of the living God. He doesn't know who he is. God shows up. We don't know what Abraham is doing, if he's washing his camel or brushing his teeth. or There's no preamble. God just shows up and starts to talk. And I love this because this is how God kind of is throughout the scriptures. You even get to the place where Jesus rises from the dead in Matthew 28, and the ladies are around the tomb, and Jesus says, Matthew 28, 9, he goes, greetings. Now, in Greek, this is like the most simple greeting. This is like, hey. That's like the greatest miracle in the world. Jesus is like, hey, what's up? You know, it's, it's even post-resurrection, Jesus is funny. I love that. So God shows up to, to Abraham, Genesis 12, 1. It says, now the Lord said to Abraham, go. Now, I love that because, because it's not like, hey, I'm God, made the planet, what's up? He just shows up, go. Okay, <laughs> you know, you're, I'm going. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. This is leave all the pagan gods your father is worshiping and go to the land I will show you. So it's not even clear where he's going. He's just going somewhere. John Calvin wrote, What God asked Abraham to do was to close his eyes, take God's hand, and walk with him. 
Now, we don't know how God spoke. Was it in a, in a person form? Was he burning a bush or a shrub like Moses? You know, what did it look like? Was it just a voice? I mean, we would have questions if God showed up to us and said, go. We would say, okay, well, what kind of land is it? Are there wells? Are there water? And we'd be like, is it Sisquoc or Santa Barbara? <laughs> right? Not you? That'd be my question. Okay, whatever. I'll go live in Gary. Whatever. Have, you have fun over there. All right. So, so God comes... And he speaks to him, and so, and God wants him to give up everything he has ever known, everything he's ever worked for, and simply trust him and move. And what God does when he says this is God makes some promises. God says, I, 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 I. All these promises rest on God. Verse 2, he says, and I will make you a great nation. Right now, Abraham has a 65-year-old wife. She is barren. She cannot have kids. She is well beyond years to have children. God says, you will be a great nation. And Abraham believes him. This is why he's a prototype of faith. He believes in possible things. And God says, and I will bless you. When your hands are empty because you're leaving everything you know, I will fill them. And I will make your name great. Now, this is interesting because if Abraham was trying to build the Tower of Babel, the whole point of that was them trying to make their own name great, make God in their own image. So God comes and knocks down the tower. And so God says, and I will make your name great. The very thing that he might have wanted so bad in Babylon, God now promises to do for the purpose of bringing glory where it belongs in God's hands. He says, so that you will be a blessing. So why does God make people great? To be a blessing. That's the point, to be a blessing, glory where it belongs. Now, I, I think people today who say Christianity is the worst thing to come upon the earth are, are idiots. I really do. Because reading, education, compassion, even, even modern science comes about because Christianity saw the world and created order as a good thing and that it should be studied. I think you extract Christianity from the earth, we'd start to eat each other and not steak and chicken like we're supposed to. God says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God loves the world. He wants people to walk with him, and he decides to bless the whole world, starting with this guy named Abraham. And through this guy, eventually Jesus comes. This is God's promise to Abraham, the beginning of covenant with him. Verse 4, so Abraham went as the Lord had told him. And that is just a wonderful statement in Scripture that he goes when God says, and it says, and Lot went with him. That guy's a problem. The rest of the book will get to him later. He's pretty freaky. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. 75. So he's like, I cut my walker and my diaper, and we're going. <laughs> I can just see the it leaving then. And Abraham took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all the possessions they had gathered and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Now, some people think when the text says, and the people they had acquired, they says, well, that's slaves. Well, that's not necessarily true. One of the best Old Testament scholars, his name is Casuto, and he says this, the text is not that he brought slaves, but converts. Meaning that as soon as God showed himself to Abraham, Abraham went and told everybody, we have been worshiping false gods and demons. We're going to worship the true God and we're going to follow him where he calls us to go. And people go, we believe. And they hopped on his walker bandwagon and they took off with him. It's a wonderful thing. It says, when they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham, uh, Abram, sorry, Abram, it becomes Abraham later. Abram passed through the land of the place at Shechem to the Okamora. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. This is a place that is dark. It needs light. So God has Abraham go there. We are in places in our world where there's a lot of darkness and we are to bring light. It is okay for you to be 
be around and reach out to people who don't believe the same thing you do. Just don't get screwed up in the process because we're all a little screwed up to begin with. We don't need to get more screwed up. We are called as believers to bring light. Now, what you'll see in just a minute is Abraham loses sight of this and what happens in the text. That's where we're getting to. Verse 8. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent and with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So far, God has promised Abraham a lineage. He's promised him land, that he would be a blessing. And Abraham almost gives all of these things away. And you'll see that God saves Abraham from himself. Because what now comes is a crazy story. Just crazy. Ladies, I will tell you, you will never complain about your husband after this story this morning. Because... It's, the, the honesty of the Bible is just incredible. You take one of the heroes of the faith and it shows their tragic failure in just abject detail. Abraham's faith is imperfect, but his faith is in the faithfulness of God. So verse 10, now there was a famine in the land. Where is that land? Where God told him to go to. So God takes him to a place and it's not all that wonderful in Abraham's eyes because there's a famine. Abraham is in a place of want. Sometimes God takes you and I to places that are difficult because he wants us to grow. Prosperity theology says, oh, God's just going to bless you and love you and everything's going to be wonderful. No. I heard one guy say, you know, the safest place to be is in the center of the will of God. I'm like, what God do you believe in? Because I'm in the center of God's will. It's crazy all the time. It's crazy. But this is the thing. When God calls us places, it's not always easy. So, so Abraham went down to, so, to Egypt to sojourn there. See, down is not good. Hell is down. Okay? God didn't tell Abraham to go down. He didn't tell him to do this. For the famine was severe in the land. So here's crazy Abraham. And what's going to happen? He's about to try and pimp out his wife to get some stuff. It's, it's really odd because she's old. Okay? When, he, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And you've got to love this. She's on a camel. She's sweaty, probably covered in dirt. Ladies, when a guy starts off like that, sin is in short order. You just know it's coming. <laughs> when you know you don't look good, and then he's all, hey, baby, you're so hot. It's like, what do you want? I mean, it's, what happens? Verse 12, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. See, you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared, you know, for your sake. Got to love that. He's thinking in his head, you know, I'm a godly guy. I'm following God. Those Egyptians, they aren't godly people. They're mean. I better protect myself. What he doesn't do is turn away from his sin and go back home. He keeps following innocent. This is like you and I. We lie and then we lie again to cover up that lie and lie and lie. And we never just say, you know, I lied about that and then live in truth. I talk to people a lot in my office who they end up sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend. And they're like, well, I guess I just better marry them because I slept with them. You know, sometimes you've got to step away from that. You repent. And you find a godly guy or godly girl. We just, for some reason, we just keep going in our sin. Sin doesn't fix sin. It creates more sin. And this is what you'll see. Verse 14. When Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. When the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. What does Abraham do? Nothing nothing just like adam in the garden just stands there as his wife's taken off but this is interesting sarah doesn't say anything either i cannot imagine a woman like that i mean most women hear this and they're like you look at your husband right now and go don't even think about it if you want to just don't okay or not okay whatever you know most women don't even think about this i mean ladies how many of you would be quiet exactly you'd be like that's my husband he's a liar kill him (laughs) right I know, she might have been like, you know, okay, you're a homeless guy in a tent. Give me to a guy in a house. I'll take that. I'm good. You know, fine. I'll just go that way. Now, Pharaoh takes her to the palace. This is very ominous because what does Pharaoh do with ladies in the palace? 
Breaks commandments. That's exactly what he does. Verse 16. And for her sake he dealt with Abraham, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, Female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So he gets all kinds of stuff. Essentially, Abraham just pimped out his wife, and he got bling. That is what just happened to him. Verse 17, who is not happy about this situation? God. God is not. It's great when God gets angry in the Bible, too. This is great. But the Lord, I love that. See, God said, you're going to have a son. It's going to come from you and your wife. So he's got to keep Pharaoh out of the mix so people don't think, oh, it was Pharaoh's baby, not Abraham's. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. I got this picture in my head. And maybe I'm just crazy how this looks. But I think it's like, does the wedding, wedding night, he walks in, hey, baby, woo, boom, disease. <laughs> It doesn't say what it was, but I got an idea where it was. He's like, uh-oh, this doesn't look good. And she's like, what's going on? Well, you know, God did say that if we, you know, if people tried to hurt us, he would take care of us and, like, mess them up. Well, this is messed up, you know. What's going on with this? In verse 18, so Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? I love, he's not riding on his brand new camel. Oh, Pharaoh wants to see me. Hey, what's up? Uh, this? Oh, yeah, sorry about the itch. You know, I mean, what, 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 what do you do with that? And he probably says, yeah, well, God told us this, and we did this other thing. Sorry. Pharaoh says, why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so I took her for my wife? Now, Pharaoh is the guy. He thinks he's God, tells everybody in his country that he is God. When the guy who thinks he's God tells you that you have a pride issue, you've got a pride issue. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Some people ask, why would they even let? Why they just kill him on the spot? Because of the itch. It's like I gotta let him go so this gets better. It's funny. <laughs> and Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Now. When Abram is first saved, he evangelizes a bunch of converts, tells them this is the one true God. People listen and they follow. And here he is deplorable representation of God. Now some people, this, this is, some people hate Christianity because of Christians' sins. I mean, in the Bible, it's the first to show it. The Bible is completely honest about this issue. And here's the problem. God cannot just work through the good guys. Do you know why? There aren't any good guys. There aren't any good guys. We're all bad guys. So God takes bad guys and changes them. This is what God does with Abraham. God is always the hero of the story. God delivers Abraham. And this is still the problem today. One of the major objections to Christianity today is people say, aren't churches filled with hypocrites? Well, the answer to that is yes. Listen to the guy this week. He was talking about how Christians have been educated beyond their obedience which is totally true. Today we want Bible study after Bible study, teach me this, teach me that, and we don't actually obey the things that we already know. We've been educated beyond our obedience. I mean, people say things, well, don't you have like a lot of people in your church who claim to be loving but aren't? Well, actually, yes, we do. I mean, we talk about how we want to be greet, greet people and love them and have them come into community when they come in. And I talked to three people in the last two weeks who nobody said hi to them when they walked through these doors. There's something wrong with that. That's hypocrisy. People say, well, hasn't the church been responsible for atrocities like the Crusades or the Inquisitions or the burning of witches? Well, well not element, but, but yeah, you know, in the history of the church it has. Now, doesn't history demonstrate that Christianity is a defective product? People say, why would I want to become a Christian when the church is filled with so many hypocrites and deeply flawed people? This book came out recently. It's called Unchristian. It's based on a research study. It shows 85% of unchurched young adults believe Christians to be hypocritical. 
and you go into the church, 47% of young adults inside the church say the same thing. And that's because I think they drink the Kool-Aid. Because it's 100%. We're all hypocritical. And that doesn't get us off the hook and saying, oh, well, it's just going to happen. We need to stop until we trust who God is and live lives that he calls us to. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about this this morning. And if you are a believer or an unbeliever, hopefully these things will resonate with you. And I'll say two things to start. And number one is this. Just because people don't live up to a message does not mean the message itself is wrong. Uh, here's the, Stephen Nordby, he, he wrote this. At a recent annual meeting of the American Heart Association in Atlanta, so American Heart Association, Atlanta, 300,000 doctors and researchers came together to discuss the importance of low-fat diets and keeping our hearts healthy. But during mealtimes, they consumed fat-filled fast food, bacon cheeseburgers, and chili fries at the same artery-clogging rate as people from any other conventions would. One cardiologist was asked, aren't you concerned that your bad eating habits will be a bad example? He replied, not me. I took off my name tag. (laughs) Okay. As a Christian, you never get to take off your name tag. But the presence of hypocrites within a movement does not show the movement itself was an error. The second thing is every belief system, ideology, movement will attract people to it who do not live up to it. All right, this is the whole idea of being educated beyond our obedience. Now, no shocker, at Berkeley, they have self-proclaimed Marxists. They are opposed to capitalist materialism. They held an event a couple years ago, and they rented a gigantic yacht. It was an open bar and all kinds of high-end luxury items. One writer in a newspaper up there called them Neiman Marxists. <laughs> Funny, right? Because they're hypocrites. You know, a study done that I heard came out this week, 49% of young adults believe that socialism is the way our country should go. 49% believe that capitalism is the way our country should go. And the socialists look at the capitalists and they say, oh, you guys are terrible, you don't care about anybody. And the capitalists look at the socialists and say, well, you have your iPods and your iPhones and all your tablets. That came about because of capitalism. You know, and they're like, and they had this whole thing going back and forth with each other. And we put each other down. And this is the idea of hypocrisy. You know, the word hypocrite comes from a Greek word called hypokritos. It's most commonly associated with the theater, people on a stage. You go on a stage, you'd have a mask, you put it in front of your face, and that was the character you play, and they would call you the Hippocrati. You would be the actors on a stage. You go all the way back to like Plato and Aristotle, and you would say the word hypocrite. They wouldn't think it was this negative term. They would think actors on a stage. Now, in the first century, one of the great theaters of the day was built in a town called Sepphoris. Here's a picture of what it would look like during the day. This is what it looks like now. Here's another picture what it looks like today. Uh, Sepphoris seated at this theater between 3,000 and 4,000 people. It was part of one of the great building projects going on in Galilee. Now, Sepphoris at this time is less than an hour's walk from, guess what tiny little town? Nazareth. That's where Jesus is from, just in case you didn't know. Okay, so Nazareth. So there's a very good chance, scholars today say a probability that a craftsman from Nazareth by the name of Joseph and his young apprentice son Jesus would have actually found work helping construct these building projects going on in Sepphoris. So Jesus, from young boyhood, be familiar with the stage, the apocrytide, these actors. And it is Jesus who comes along and critiques religious hypocrisy in a way that shapes the rest of history. I mean, many people aren't even aware of this. When Jesus starts to talk about this dynamic, he uses a word that was vivid in everybody's mind because they would have known about the theater and the actors on the stage. Secular scholar Eva Cate writes this. She says, It's the New Testament's usage that most shapes our thinking about hypocrisy because of the unique emphasis on the condition of the inner person as opposed to mere outer behavior. The word hypocrite is used 17 times in the scriptures. Every single time it's used by Jesus. I actually know of no other word throughout the scriptures that is so singularly his. Dallas Willard writes this. 
It is clear from the literary records that it was Jesus alone who brought this term hypocrisy and the corresponding character into moral, to the moral record of the Western world. It is ironic that even when, precisely when, we criticize the church for producing hypocrites, we pay tribute to this man, Jesus, whose teaching gave us the picture of hypocrisy that shapes our moral understanding 2,000 years later. If you have a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, you have this whole chapter, and it is given over to Jesus' analysis of hypocrisy and what it looks like. First book, New Testament, easy to find. Got a Gideon Bible? You're right there. All right. Matthew 23, uh, starting in verse 2. Jesus says, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. This is the idea of a place of authority. At the end of verse 3, he says, for the, listen, he says listen to what they say. In verse 3, he says, For they preach, but they do not practice. They say all these things you're supposed to do, and a lot of the things they say are actually good things, but they don't do what they say. And what do we call that? Hypocrisy. Verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. What do we call that? Hypocrisy. Verse 13, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of of heaven in people's faces. Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weight of your matters of the law, justice, and mercy, and faithfulness. Verse 25, hypocrites. Verse 27, hypocrites. Verse 28, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now, the Pharisees are the most admired spiritual faith leaders of the day. And Jesus says, the scribes, these are the teachers of the law, so they're Bible teachers. In other words, what Jesus says, he talks about this condition that for all of us is a hairbreadth away for anybody who takes faith in God seriously. I mean, Jesus knew this condition would come and infiltrate his movement called Christianity. I mean, just look at Judas. So when you read these words, you cannot think you're exempt from it. You cannot think that, oh, I'm like Abraham. I'm just better than those Egyptians. I'm better than other people. Because hypocrisy is not just that we don't live up to a standard. It's that we spend our money a certain way that doesn't honor God. We manage our lives ways that don't honor God. We deceive other people around us to get them to think we're better than we actually are. We hide our secret dislike for other people behind polite smiles. You know, we pretend to help somebody else when inside we're hoping they actually fail. We portray ourselves you know, as, as full of love when really we're judgmental and, and selfish. We want to give the impression, oh, I'm brave and I love God. I will follow him to my death. But when it comes down to what God calls us to do and what we want to do, we do what we want to do. This is why Jesus says that hypocrites are blind because they can't even see their blindness themselves. I believe this is why throughout the scriptures we are called to gather together in smaller communities. This is why we push gospel communities so strongly at Element. James 5.16, he says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You know, sometimes we want to aspire to this higher standard, but we can't get there. And that's why we bring other people around us to help us to do it, to hold us accountable. We confess to one another. Dallas Willard writes this. He says, Whatever our position in life, if our lives and works are to be of the kingdom of God, we must not have human approval as a primary or even major aim. We must lovingly allow people to think whatever they will. Now, some people take that and they run the exact opposite direction with that. They think, oh, I'll just be a jerk in Jesus' name. People, I don't care what they think about me. No, no, we're supposed to live lives of grace and truth and love. And people ridicule you for living a life of grace and love. You don't worry about what they think because you're honoring God with your life and you're stopping to be a hypocrite. I mean, see, people ask questions like, how do you defend the Crusades or, or the Inquisition or the burning of witches? You know, how do you defend when somebody walks through Element and doesn't even get said hi to you? How do you defend that? The really short answer is you don't. You don't. 
I think it's sin, all those things. But it was also true that there have been regimes on this planet that do not believe in God and have done much worse evil. Stalin, Hitler, and Mao, together the three of them are thought to have caused the deaths of 70 to 100 million people in the 20th century. And these are people who said, well, we don't believe in God at all. Everybody I know, whether they're Christian or atheist, would see that as wrong. And my own conviction is that if people cease to believe they were created in God's image by a good and loving God and that they'll be held accountable by a just God, it opens the door to all kinds of things that would be unthinkable. It's like Dostoevsky's you know, great quote. He says, if God does not exist, then everything is permitted. And then all of a sudden, great evil comes about. I all should tell you that it's true that the followers of Jesus throughout history, history has historically been responsible for hospitals, education, movements in art and reform, the expression of compassion, generosity that has changed the entire world. I think the question that matters most is this one. When people who claim to be followers of Jesus do bad things, is it because of Jesus' teachings or is it in spite of Jesus' teachings? Because the answer to everything has to come down to Jesus. And when we do things opposite of what he calls us to, it's in spite of Jesus' teaching. But it really seems this whole thing where this, this us versus them mentality that gets inside of us, I mean, it's, just, it's just ingrained in us. Researchers recently did this study where they divided boys at a camp between group W and group X to look at the power of us versus them. And so they're, they're taking and giving one kid a bit of money. And they said, we want you to take this money and then give some to somebody on your group and then somebody in the other group. And what they thought they'd do is get a baseline, right? So they'd give some to one, some to the other, and then start putting some antagonism into these groups to see how much antagonism it would take before the boy in one group would just give all the money to the one in their group and none to the uh, kid in the other. And what they found out, they couldn't even get a baseline. Researchers said, our clearest finding is that boys will discriminate against other boys as soon as they are randomly assigned to different groups. As soon as. It's ingrained into us. And if you're thinking girls would do any better, it's because you're a girl. (laughs) And you're in a different group, right? I mean, have you ever known Christians to divide people between us and them? You know, I'm a Christian, you're not, you're terrible, and I'm so good and, and holy. There's an old story, it's been around for a while, you might have heard it, I don't know. There's this guy walking down the Golden Gate Bridge, he sees a girl really lonely, standing on the edge, she's, she's ready to jump, and he runs up and he says, no, 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 don't jump, God loves you. And a tear comes to her eye, and so he asks her, are you a Christian, a Jew, a Hindu, what are you? She says, I'm a Christian, he says, me too, me too. He goes, he goes what are you, you know, Protestant, Catholic? She goes, I'm a Protestant, he goes, small world, me too. You know, and he goes, so, so what are you? Are you, are you Baptist? And she goes, yeah, I'm a Baptist. She goes, I goes, I'm a Baptist too. He goes, Northern, Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? She says, Northern Baptist. And he goes, I'm a Northern Baptist too. This is amazing. And so he says, Northern Conservative Baptist, Northern Liberal Baptist. <laughs> well, Northern Conservative Baptist. That's a miracle. I am too. Well, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist, Northern Conservative Reform Baptist. <laughs> well, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist. Remarkable. Me too. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Eastern Region? She says, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region. Oh my goodness. The glory of God has shown down. I am too. So he says, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? She says, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. So he pushes her off. (laughs) This is what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 5. 43 to 45, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Jesus explains this command is rooted in the nature of God. So he says, You be like him. And Jesus just didn't teach this. Jesus practiced what he preached. And they eventually kill him because of it. One of the last miracles Jesus ever does is a strange story. 
that he's in the garden, he's praying with his disciples, the guards come in, and they try to arrest him, and Peter whips out a sword and chops, chops this guard's ear off. His name is Malchus. And I think Jesus goes, Peter, put the sword away. He picks up the ear, walks over to Malchus, sticks it back on Malchus' head. And I think Jesus is like, you know, sorry about Peter. I've been trying to teach him for three years. He's, he's really hard. He doesn't listen a whole lot. So really sorry. Sticks the ear back on his head. You know, apologize for the ear. Now, can you imagine when Malchus gets home and talks to his wife? You know, how did work go? Well, I got my ear cut off. <laughs> it's, wow, how'd that? It's still there, you know. Well, the strangest thing happened. The man who I came to arrest who eventually is going to get crucified on a cross. He healed me. He loved me. He helped me. And I had him arrested. Why would he do that? See, Dale Bruner put it like this. He says, Jesus' enemies are not the only problem. Jesus' overzealous followers have historically been just as painful to him. Because for Jesus, the categories are not us versus them. It's perfect and not perfect. It's holy and sinful. The question is, who is on the holy and perfect side? Jesus. And who's on the other side? All the rest of us. And that is what is so amazing about grace. You see, Abraham, he's not a righteous guy. He's a stupid knucklehead. And he viewed Pharaoh and the Egyptians as the other side. So he goes in acting like a hypocrite. I'm going to take care of myself because you guys are evil. And they look at him and say, why did you lie to us like this, Abraham? Well, why do we do it? Because we're all the same. We are sinful and we are lost. But Jesus comes as one of us. He who knew no sin takes on the weight and burden of sin on the cross for our sake. Here was perfect. Took on the broken imperfections and darkness, including the hypocrisy that is every single one of us. And the story of Jesus is not just a story of someone who died at the hands of his enemies. It's a story of someone who died for the sake of his enemies. And so Jesus rises and we are told there's no Jew, no Greek, no male, no female, no slave, no free. No more of that business. None of it. It's just sinful human beings and a sinless Savior who takes on the sins of the world. And he says to us, now you go and live a life. And you love the human race that I died to save. We stop living as hypocrites. We stop being educated beyond our obedience. And we live what we already know. If you are not a believer in this room this morning and hypocrisy has ever kept you from coming to Jesus Christ, I want you to know that he hates it more than you do. Actually, he hates it so much that he drew the picture of it that's informed the human race for 2,000 years. If you are a Christian and you are battling hypocrisy, I will tell you that Jesus can deliver you from it. Ephesians 5.1 says, Be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live a life of love. That is the life we should be living. Today we can all be different by living as his strength and his power. We should be those who understand the great grace given to us that we can even be saved. And so we reach out to everyone around us. This is why we bring you guys to communion every single week. It's this place where we remember that our great God came and died and rose for you and I. That's why you break that cracker like his body was broken for you and I. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and I. So that we can be a people who live in his great grace and great goodness and that we can actually be saved and stop living as hypocrites. We don't need to be the hypocrite. We need to actually be Christians and followers of Jesus. That's what we need to be. The band's going to come up. They'll do a couple songs. And as they do these songs, we encourage you to take communion. If you need prayer, there'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you in your life have felt like you've been walking through life as a hypocrite and you want to stop, go and pray with them. If you don't feel like maybe you can talk to a whole lot of people about it, you just want to maybe talk and pray with one, go and talk and pray with them. Um, there's offering boxes on the side wall and in the back. Uh, we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. So we offer you the opportunity every single week. We don't pass a plate. It's simply what you guys would like to do.
He's excited. <laughs> He's like, the music's coming. <laughs> uh, and there's food in the back. Uh, and if you guys would like to grab some food, maybe meet some other people. Because in the end, really, we cannot walk this Christian life alone. God never intended it to be so. And when we do, we will fall into the trap of hypocrisy every single time. So this is why we gather people around us who love and follow Christ as well, and we follow together, allowing each other to hold us up. And so we want to encourage you guys, if you want to be in a gospel community or check things out about that, uh, stop at the Welcome Center and sign up and, and maybe talk to them, and we'll try and plug you in somewhere. Because really, we need to be a people holding each other up. And when you see one of your friends you know, dealing with hypocrisy, be like, hey, hypocrisy. You say it like that. It'll be cool. Like, my, my, G, my GC meets later tonight, and I'll probably end up telling him how I'm such a hypocrite, because I am all the time. But that's the deal. We need to live as God calls us to live, in great grace and wisdom and goodness. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would convict our hearts, especially of the times when we put ourselves in your place in our own lives, where we have been educated beyond our obedience, and that we would simply be a people who understand that deeper means better focused. So we'd focus better on what you've already called us to. Instead of trying to spend all of our time to learn more and more and more, that we would do what we simply already know. And Father, I know when we take a serious inventory of our heart and lives, sometimes we think we're never going to change. It's never going to get better. We're just always going to be the same. And yet you are a God who has promised that things can change and things can be different. We simply need to be obedient to what you've called us to. And so, this morning, have us understand the depth of the ocean of your grace that you have thrown all of us into, where there's no shore in sight, and it's just all grace. And that grace should bring us great humility in how not only we view others around us, but our own lives. And that we would treat those around us with dignity and respect and honor because we are a humble people trusting our great God who has come and practiced what he preached and showed us how to live and yet given us the strength also to do so. Have us fully trust and honor you as our great God. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.